Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 135, where we interview Seth Williams from RE Tipster and hear how he is growing his wealth by investing in a slightly different form of real estate. Unlike houses, land is, I don't want to say zero competition anymore. That's how it used to be, but it's, it's very, very low competition. Like when I make an offer to somebody, most of the time, there is no other offer on the table. It's not like they have 10 other people lined up behind me we're willing to pay more. So it's, it works. It's, and it's a lot easier than most other types of real estate. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my grounded co-host, Scott Trench. These introductions are just landing every single time, Mindy. Great, great <laughs> job. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else and show you that by following the proven steps, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or invest in an asset class like land, raw land, will help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams. Scott, I'm super pumped to have Seth on the show today because we are going to talk about an, a way to invest in real estate that doesn't involve tenants and toilets or flipping houses or anything like that. It is the investment in raw land, just blank dirt. And there's a lot of actual advantages to investing in land, most notably you're not spending a lot of money on your investment. We both live in the Denver area and here the median home price is what, like $400,000? Seth is buying properties for a little bit less than that. That's right. Yeah. It's a good way to plot your uh, first journey towards real estate investing. If you don't have, all right, I'm going to stop with the the, the ridiculous uh, no, land and pot puds for a minute here. <laughs> but no, this is this is an interesting new way to approach real estate investing with, with these raw land deals. And uh, I think Seth has a really good approach. It's obviously been very, very profitable for him. And it's all grounded in this sense that this is an inefficient market. There's a lot of it's more difficult to value, I think, raw land in a lot of cases, for example, an undeveloped plot of land in a subdivision than it is for houses, which I think a lot of people are much more comfortable with the specific value of. And so I think Seth has some really good ideas that I'll get you going on how to kind of begin approaching that and how he used that to kind of begin his own journey to financial independence, starting with a modest full-time job in his 20s. Yeah. And as I alluded to, he's paying significantly less than what you're paying for an actual already developed property. And why that makes this such a great investment vehicle is because if you make a mistake when you are buying a rental property or buying a house to rehab and then sell quickly, you're putting in a lot of money. If he makes a mistake, he spent $300. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to lose $300 than $3,000 or $300,000 or, you know, any number there in between. It's not exciting to lose 300, but it's not devastating to lose 300. So it's an easier way to kind of test the waters. And I found this concept fascinating and I hope that you, the listener, will too. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turned a nerd wallet. Scott's right. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Seth Williams from retipster.com. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today because you are going to talk about a kind of little known way to invest in real estate that isn't super cash intensive, which is kind of a great way to get started investing in real estate. So you know, I think that's super exciting and I don't know anything about it. So I'm going to really, really grill you. I hope you're ready. Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> so before we talk about that, I want to hear where your money story started, how you got started investing in land. Oh, spoiler alert. We're going to talk about investing in land in a little bit, but that's like, that's really interesting. I would love to own land. What is that quote? Buy land. They're not making any more of it. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, that's just super cool. So tell me about your money journey. You know, growing up, I had a good family life, two parents at home in terms of like high school and college. For me, my parents worked really hard and they covered my college tuition. And I know that's not a common thing, but I was very, very privileged in that sense. So I, I was able to finish college with no debt. Yep, and, same uh, here. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Same, it's, but uh, very lucky. Yep. It's an awesome, awesome gift parents can give to their kids if they're able to. And, you know, I, when I was in college, I started learning about this whole idea of financial freedom and getting your money to work for you, and that kind of thing. And I realized when I was reading that stuff that, like, I didn't really know a whole lot of people growing up that were doing that. Like, I didn't see a whole lot of that in my family. I mean, really, even my extended family, even my friends, like, nobody was doing that. Everybody just took this approach of, you know, you get your W-2 job and you, you know, just the conventional saving for retirement and that kind of thing. And so I, I sort of assumed that was just how my life had to be. And so initially when I was in college, I was trying to find, thinking, you know, what could I do that's going to make me tons of money in the sense of having a conventional job? Like I, at one point I wanted to be a dentist or a doctor or something like that. And uh, truth was like, that's not who I was. That's not what I was. tooth was? 
What's that? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the truth was, <laughs> the truth was, I, I'm not a doctor. That's not really what I love to do. Honestly, I don't even think I'm smart enough to get through the school it takes to do that. Uh, it was really just about the money. And I didn't realize that like there are ways to make the money without having to do something you don't want to do. You can really make it doing what you love. And mm-hmm. I mean, what better combination is there than doing what you love and actually getting paid well for it? Did these realizations hit you in college? Is that where you're able to kind of figure that out, like kind of largely in undergraduate? I think so. It was not immediately. It was uh, when I started reading, you know, the typical rich dad, poor dad books, when my eyes were kind of opened in realizing that, you know, having a typical job was not necessarily a requirement to get where I wanted to go. So it wasn't obvious to me, like, okay, well, what do I do then? Like, what is the right career path for me. I just realized like there's something here that I wasn't told that I need to explore further. And it actually took like several years of exploring it to figure that out. But I did know in terms of like, okay, what am I trying to major major in in college? Like what should my first job or step be? And so understanding kind of just the general path I was trying to go down, I decided to get into the banking world because I one would have an argument that if you're in banking, you're going to figure out how money works and you know how financing works and all these things that many other careers probably won't inherently teach you. So that was kind of the path I took. And I got uh, employed with a small business financing company doing SBA 504 loans. And I mean, in terms of jobs and how jobs go, it was not a bad job. I mean, it was good hours and all that. And I did get exposed to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of small businesses in my area I was able to close hundreds of loans, underwrite hundreds of loans, really understand like what makes this business tick and what makes them do well and what kinds of things would make them not do well or not credit worthy. And uh, man, there's just, depending on the business, there are so many rabbit trails you can go down and so many things you can really learn about how different types of businesses work. And uh, it was very, very eye-opening. So I really owe a lot to that uh, particular career path just in terms of learning how money works. And that kind of career, it doesn't necessarily teach you how to build like personal wealth or anything. That's not like the point of it, but you'll just pick up lots of helpful insights in the process of uh, working in that kind of job. So I think it's really important to note that you figured this out in college. What do I want? What job can I do that will pay me a lot of money? I think a lot of people are told, you know, from knee high, oh, you can be anything you want to be. Follow your dreams, pursue your passions. Well, sometimes your passions pay like crap. So (laughs) that's not necessarily the best advice. What job will pay me the most that I could stand to do too? I mean, don't go be a dentist if people's teeth gross you out because that's going to be a bad choice. And that's going to cost you a lot of money to learn that it's, it's a bad choice. I could not be a doctor. My mom is a nurse and I could not be in the medical field because I don't really want to look at blood. And there's a lot of that when you go to the doctor and, you know, plus just even becoming a doctor, you have to look at bodies and like, that's just gross to me. So that's not a path that I was going to follow either. I did not have the same foresight that you did. And I chose the wrong path for me. And, you know, I wonder if there's something that kids could study 
while they are waiting to figure out their path. I mean, your general education courses will take you, what, two years at least just to get the basics that you have to graduate with anyway. And then you can kind of start to pick a major. But if you're not sure what you want to do, you know, go with business, go with a general kind of degree to get at least be more employable than fashion designer. It's kind of crazy when you think about like how many huge life altering decisions we all have to make when we're like 18. I'm like, it's, yeah. it's insane. And like, I don't know how else it's supposed to work. Cause that's just when you have to make those decisions. But when you think about like where you go to college, if you go to college and that affects who you're going to meet, it could potentially affect who your spouse is going to be, what career path you're going to take. And you're doing all this stuff. Like I think back to who I was when I was 17, 18 years old like I was kind of dumb, honestly. Like there was so much I didn't know about anything. It's almost like rolling the dice and just hoping, hoping it, it uh, turns out well. So it is exactly like rolling the dice. Yeah. Why do people allow their kids to choose majors that maybe aren't so great? You know, I can't blame my parents. I am really pigheaded, and I would not have listened to them when they tried to steer me towards business or you know some other degree. I really wanted to do this at that time, but that's you know it's almost unfair to your future self to force you to make these decisions when you're 18. I think that parents, yeah. we as parents, have to do better. You have kids, right, Seth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We as parents have to do better in encouraging our kids to study something more marketable or just don't go to college. I mean, when I was growing up after high school, you went to college, just like you breathe air. The sky is blue. Grass is green. You go to college. That's the way it is. And college is not the choice for everybody. Yeah. We're going, we're going down a tangent that we how, don't need how to many, down, but. I, this is just me. This is just me talking about how many like of these big decisions are influenced by the, the silliest things like so-and-so said, this is a good school or this is a good profession and you don't even necessarily like or respect so-and-so, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's in the yeah. back of your mind when choosing these things. I don't, you know, th- like th- those kinds of things pile up, I think for, for folks there as well, impacting decisions down the line to your point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that is interesting. Cause I, I think what it boils down to is I don't know the answer, but there's a lot of people who go really far despite where they go to college. Like the college is like, you know, it's not obviously helpful, but that's not like what determines the trajectory of your life necessarily. I mean, some people can go to the best Ivy League school and kind of just flounder around for the rest of their lives and other people like become president, you know? So it's, it's hard to know <laughs> how, like how vital that is or where you end up going. Well, let's get back to your story here. So you, you graduate, you go to this this uh, banking job in, in financing for a few years. Walk us through that journey. What does your money story look like there? Do you, are you a big saver? Are you an investor? What are you doing with the money as you earn it? And how are you kind of beginning to... You know, you said it took a couple of years earlier for all of the rich dad, poor dad, financial freedom stuff to kind of really digest and sink in. Did that kind of hit at some point during your career? Or in college, walk us through all that, please. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the high-level idea of you know just the financial intelligence thing. Like, I realized before I even got my first job, like that's a thing, and I need to actually consciously pursue that and figure that out. But it took a long time to get to the bottom of that. I probably still am not really to the bottom of it per se, but just the general awareness of that was there pretty early on, and. In terms of like how my money life worked, I mean, I my 
income was not a lot. I mean, it was like your typical entry level job out of college, like a white collar kind of career. And, you know, I don't know that I was like a super huge saver, but I wasn't a massive spender either. I just kind of lived within my means. But I, I did it with the knowledge that, like, something else has to come from this job. Like this job is going to be a springboard to something much better. This is not, this is not the final destination for the next 30 or 40 years. Like it can't be like, I don't know. I just, it wasn't that I disliked my job at all. It was just that it wasn't my heart's deepest desire. It was, it was a means to an end really. And I picked that career path because I knew I'd probably get some insight from that in terms of figuring out what does the next step look like outside of this job? How can I figure out this puzzle of money and really understand, you know, how to, how to grow a business? How does cash flow work? What makes a good or bad investment? And uh, I did figure a lot of that out through that job, but I knew pretty early on that real estate was probably going to play some part in this. And I, I liked a lot of what real estate had to offer. And so I spent a lot of time trying to find opportunities on the MLS and that kind of thing. And it's, I had a really hard time doing that in the open market. It sounds like this job and your, your financial position, it sounds like you were able to accumulate something meaningful on an annual basis throughout your years at this job, but that it wasn't really a primary factor in driving your, your, you forward, except for in the knowledge that you gained from the job about how to, and how to apply that to your own business. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like, I don't know that. I mean, I, I probably saved up and maybe like five to 10,000 bucks total from this job. I, I wasn't making that much in terms of the banking profession as a whole. My pay was at the lower end of that spectrum because I, I wasn't working for a traditional bank per se. I was working for a small company that was essentially doing uh, outsource work from the SBA because we were doing SBA 504 loans. So I wasn't employed by SBA, but SBA gave their work to us and we did it. We were called a certified development company. So anyway, my, my income was not huge from this job. And that was part of the problem with wanting to do real estate is that you kind of do need some cash. I mean, maybe not always, but a lot of times it helps to have a slush fund to work with. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a whole lot. And that, that was a big part of how land specifically came into the, into the picture and also how to go about finding those opportunities because I don't know of many other ways that I could have done it outside of land specifically, because I was able to use the few thousand bucks I had in my bank account to find a deal, buy it and own it free and clear for a very, very cheap price, and then sell it at a profit. And, and that's something that, again, I don't want to say it's impossible, never say never, but with the vast majority of real estate investing strategies out there, it's just not a thing. It's just not how it works. When people think about investing in real estate, most frequently they think about becoming a landlord of a single family home or maybe like a small multifamily, but mostly it's a single family home. So you're thinking residential when you think, especially when you're first getting into it, you're not thinking of owning a 400 unit apartment complex because how could I afford that? I only have five or $10,000 in my bank account. Nobody's going to sell me this giant complex. So I think a lot of people like the idea of real estate, but then stop because it's so expensive. I live in a very expensive part of the world. I can't buy a $30,000 house. I guess I could a couple of hours away, but it's like across the street from the prison, you know? So that's not really necessarily my dream investment. No, that was my same train of thought. I mean, I, the conversation sort of was just cut off early on in my head because it's like, well, I need 
10 or 20 grand to even think about doing this. And I don't, so I guess I'm stuck. And I know there's stuff like wholesaling houses and there's, you know, other bird dogging strategies and stuff like that. But, and that stuff is easy to say, but there's a lot of obstacles to that as well. Lots of other battles you have to fight that I wasn't necessarily going to be good at fighting. So yeah, I get it. Well, let's jump back to this. So, so you're, you're talking about, Hey, look, you're a couple years into your job. How many years into your job before you buy your first land deal? Oh man, I think it was a year and a half, I think approximately. Okay. So a year and a half in and you're like, Hey, I've got a few thousand bucks at most in my bank account that I've been able to save up. And real estate's just not an option for me in a traditional sense, because I can't put down 15%. It's probably almost even difficult to house hack given your situation and and the, the few thousand bucks at the time. So you're like, Hey, land is an option for me. How do you go about conceptualizing land as an investment concept and then acting on it within just a couple of years of starting your career? Yeah, well, I actually wanted to do the house hacking thing long before it was called that. But my my wife wasn't really on board. She wasn't like, "Oh yeah, I want to go have tenants living up, you know, upstairs and that kind of thing." She just sort of wanted a normal, normal house, normal living situation. <laughs> so, so I relented, and we didn't do that. But yeah, I, so like, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But the thing with land was that there's there's a couple of different things that come into play here. It's it's not just buying land, it's buying it really, really cheap, like way cheaper than anybody would think possible. And it's very possible to do that. And in order to do that, you have to be talking to the right people and find motivated sellers who are very, very likely to say yes to that. And there's several different ways you can do this. The way that I've done it really, I guess, ever since I started, has been direct mail. I also have a website where I can get people that way as well. But with direct mail, it's all about finding a list very specifically of vacant landowners and finding other ways to drill down and increase the likelihood that they're going to be highly motivated to sell. One way is to make sure the vacant landowners don't live in the same state where their property is located or maybe live uh, maybe in the same state, but in a different county. So they're you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind. You can also do this with like a delinquent tax list. This was how I did it for years. And that's certainly a feasible way. That's basically where you contact the county and you say, hey, I need a list of all the people in your county that are currently delinquent on their property taxes. So, and this is not a tax deed list or a tax auction list or anything like that. The people still own their property, but if they don't pay their taxes soon, they're going to lose it in tax foreclosure. And it certainly works, but that particular approach also has its own drawbacks. Like, the list is kind of a huge pain to get and usually it's a total mess to work with. So there's other battles you have to fight if you go that direction. But the idea is just to find a list of vacant landowners and you send them a mail piece. And there's a couple ways to do this as well. One way is to send them either a letter or a postcard and just saying, hey, I see you own land in this county and I'm looking to buy land. If you want to sell it, give me a call uh, or visit my website or shoot me an email. And they will do that. And you can go back and forth and make them a really, really low offer. And the thing about using the right list of motivated sellers is that, and especially with land in particular, is that land is, is a very unemotional kind of property for a motivated seller because it's not the roof over anybody's head. Usually it's something they bought like 20 years ago and they just had a change of plans and they don't think about it or see it anymore. It's just a tax bill they have to pay. Other times it's something that they inherited. So it was never really theirs in the first place. And it's easy to make an offer to people like that, especially if they've been paying taxes for 20 years and they just don't want the thing. 
Especially it's, it's, if they've not been paying taxes. Right? Yeah, especially that. Especially, especially if they're literally <laughs> about to lose it in a couple months. It's like, hey, you can get nothing or you can let me pay you a couple hundred bucks. What do you want to do? And you're giving them a big easy button. And uh, land, it's actually not uncommon at all where I'll make a really low offer to somebody and they say no, they think it's worth more. They think, think they can sell it for more. And honestly, they probably can. And I don't, I don't tell them otherwise. It's just, hey, this is our offer, you know? And if, if you can do better, I wish you all the best. But many, many times people will try to sell their land the way that they think it can be done. And they just come back a few months later realizing, yeah, I actually can't do this. I don't know how to do it. So, okay, I'll take your offer. So there's, uh, there's lots of people out there who own land that they're more than happy to part with if you just make it easy for them. And unlike houses, land is, I don't want to say zero competition anymore. That's how it used to be, but it's, it's very, very low competition. Like when I make an offer to somebody, most of the time, there is no other offer on the table. It's not like they have 10 other people lined up behind me who are willing to pay more. So it's, I don't know. It's just, uh, it works. It's, and it's a lot easier than most other types of real estate. So can you walk us through one of your very first purchases? How did you, what did you do? What was the deal? You gave us some, some frameworks here. Which one did you apply in your first deal? And you know, all the mess that comes along with, with the first of anything in a, in a career like this. Yeah. Well, on my first deal, uh, I was using a delinquent tax list, which I don't, actually don't use a lot of anymore just because they're, they take more time to sort through. But so um, how did you get this list? Yeah, I got it by calling the county and it was a county just to the north of me. And I just said, hey, I'm looking for a list of all the property owners in this county who are currently delinquent on their property taxes. Can you send that to me? And I specified that I needed it in an Excel file with you know not only the property owner's mailing address and their name, but also the property itself. Who did you contact? Uh, the county treasurer. Was the county treasurer. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And that's not always the person who can end up giving it to you. Sometimes they'll, they won't know what you're talking about. That's actually not uncommon at all. If you're working in a new county, they'll just, they'll misunderstand the question, give you the wrong thing, or just say, nope, we don't have it. But the thing is, every county has it because every county has to, you know, keep track of who is current on their property taxes. If they track that, then they have to have this list somewhere. And so sometimes you'll have to go down a different path, maybe contacting the county IT department because maybe they have the ability to generate this list, but the treasurer does not. Ultimately, you're their ally, right? Because these are delinquent property taxes. And if you buy that property, then by definition, they're going to ha- they're gonna get their property taxes collected on them yeah. so, or, or they're going to be, at least begin to collect them again. Yeah. That's really the cool thing is that if you're working with the right people, and if you're able to communicate well enough, you're really like doing everybody a favor along the way. I mean, you're doing the county a favor, you're doing the seller a favor because they're, and a lot of t- times they're just going to lose their property and get nothing. And the future person who buys the property from you, you're doing them a huge favor because they're getting a huge discount from market value. So it's pretty cool. So I like how you said that it's not an emotional transaction. You're not taking the roof from somebody. Yeah. And a lot of times like, emotions are actually the reason why people buy land because usually they have this idea that, oh, yeah, I'll have my cottage there someday or, you know, I can go park my RV there. They have these grand ideas of what they'll do with it. But like logically, they're not actually going to do it. And then that's when I come in and buy it from them. So yeah, it's, when they originally buy it, it's emotional. But when they sell it, it's much less emotional. That's when logic comes into the picture. And they're like, okay, maybe this wasn't the smartest thing. Let's just get out of it. 
Hmm. So, okay. So you, you call the, the county treasurer, you get this list and how do you go about actually getting this first deal? So yeah, I just sent out uh, in this case, postcards, these yellow postcards and a bunch of people responded and don't get me wrong. Some people, when they respond, are not going to be happy with you. Like, even if you don't make them an offer, they're just going to be like, don't ever call me again. I hate you. All this stuff. And that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's just a lot of crazy people out there. But the way that I have my system set up is when they call me, they don't actually talk to me. I have a two minute long voicemail message that I actually explain in the mail piece. I talk about, Hey, you know, I set up a, um, a recorded voicemail message because I don't want to miss your call. So call me anytime. And when they listen to the voicemail, it explains the whole context of why I contacted them and what I can do. You know, I say that, you know, I'm trying to buy properties at a discount. So I'm not hiding that from them. It's not like they think they're going to get full market value. And sometimes they, they leave a voicemail, sometimes they don't. But usually when somebody does leave a voicemail, that tells me, yes, like this person is officially motivated and they do want to play ball and call them back and we have a conversation and I'll make an offer right after that. And, you know, a lot of times they say no, but you just need a handful of people to say yes from every campaign. On your first deal, did you have this system set up? Yep, I did. Yeah. Okay. So I, I knew from, and some people actually are happy to talk to people when they call in because they like talking to people. I'm not one of those people. Like I, <laughs> I, I did that for a little bit, but I realized pretty quickly, like I just have other things to do and I, I don't need to hear everybody's life story. So it's kind of a way of screening out a lot of the people who probably aren't going to work with you anyway. But yeah, so one of the people who called was, uh, they were from Long Beach, California. It was a old man. I, I don't know what his story was, but he had bought the property decades earlier. And I made him an offer for 331 bucks. And uh, he also had some taxes I had to pay off. Not much, but he was like, yeah, let's do it. And so uh, we go ahead. We went, uh, filled out the purchase agreement. He sent me the deed. I sent him a cashier's check for the amount and uh, paid off the taxes. And I owned the property free and clear. And it was a, a half acre buildable parcel, kind of like in a rural podunk town. And uh, I ended up listing it on Craigslist and I sold it 11 days later for $1,900 cash. And when I got through that whole process and realized like, I didn't have to take out any loans for this. Like, this is pretty easy. Like this was not a hard thing. I didn't have to pay a realtor to list or sell this thing. I just did it myself. And it wasn't huge money or anything, but you know, it was money. And I realized, hey, if I did this a lot more or if I did much bigger versions of this, like again, with no debt, like that's kind of a big deal. I could do a lot more of this. And, uh, and that's kind of what I've done. And I will say like these days, the approach has changed quite a bit. I, I don't work with uh, delinquent tax lists nearly as much just because they're a hassle to work with. I think it's, it's not a bad way to get started just because if you have time and if you're willing to wade through those issues, it can totally work. And there's also a different way of sending out offers, which is uh, some people call it blind offers, where you're basically figuring out what are these properties most likely worth on a per acre basis. And literally the first piece of mail you send them is an offer. And I think the nice thing about that is that you don't have to have these back and forth conversations nearly as much because from the first point of contact, they know what the offer is and they want to do it. They will. If they don't, they won't, or they can at least call back and they sort of know where you're coming from. So let me just kind of make a couple of observations here and get your feedback on them. So you bought this place for 331 bucks plus some delinquent taxes. 
probably it sounds like dollars, maybe tens of yeah. dollars, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. And then you also spent, uh, you also invested a number of hours, I imagine, into figuring out the basic uh, way to begin approaching this business, that concept of going to the county treasurer and getting the list, mm-hmm. mailing the postcards, dealing with with all of the calls inbound, as fun as you, you've made that sound, <laughs> um, and all, all of that kind of good stuff. So how would you kind of articulate that overall investment and maybe time and money in order to get that first deal? And then it sound, and then I'm, I'm getting very excited for how this is going to snowball from here and how you parlayed that into a much bigger business over time. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, like how would I articulate it, just mean like how much time it took or, or um... yeah, like how much time did you, how much, how much time did you invest self-educating, learning, figuring it out, you know, and then actually operating to get that first deal done? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned earlier, like the first time through anything, like it's just kind of a mess and it's, there are definitely issues. I don't know how many hours exactly, but it was a lot of hours. I mean, it was probably weeks really of just figuring out from a high level, like, how does this work? Like what sequence of steps do I have to go through? Even like getting the voicemail system set up and getting my own separate, you know, business phone number. And I also have a, like a a PO box type address on the mailers that go out and like a business name. And it's like, there is a lot of groundwork to lay, especially that first year, just tons of infrastructure to set up and just going through the process several times really to get your arms around it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be prepared for weeks really as at least is, is what it took. 50 to a hundred hours ish. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not a crazy amount to think, but the thing about that is though, in terms of snowballing, like it gets way easier the second and third and fourth time, like everything's already set up. The systems are there. Like, you know what to do, you know what to say, you know how, how to identify Okay, this person's probably motivated or no, they're not. Sometimes you might just not even bother sending them an offer because it's obvious they're not interested. So yeah, it, uh, it gets significantly faster. Okay, coming from the residential side, when I buy a house, I get title insurance, which protects the interests of me and the interests of my lender because my house is not $331. Do you have to get any sort of title insurance or do any sort of homework on the deed itself, because just because you contacted this guy from Long Beach doesn't mean he actually owns it or has the ability to sell it to you. On the other hand, let's say it was a complete fraud. You are out $331. You're not out $300,000. So how much due diligence do you do? And what are the pitfalls? What can happen when you don't do that? That's actually something a lot of people don't think about, but yeah, absolutely. So you still want to do a title search at the very least, make sure you understand like the person who is selling me this property, do they actually own the property? Are they, are they just saying that? Because something that's actually pretty common, especially with inheritance situations is, you know, John Smith bought the property. Now they died and their son, Joe Smith, they think they own it because they've been paying the property taxes, but the paperwork was never put together to actually give him ownership or he doesn't have the authority to sell it on behalf of his father's estate. And it's, uh, it's basically called a cloud on title or a gap in the chain of title. And if that's there, you definitely want to know about it. Sometimes there's things you can do to get that fixed. Uh, other times not, in which case you could either walk away from the deal or you could do what's called a quiet title action uh, later on down the road, which is you know usually costs a couple thousand bucks and takes some time to do that. 
But uh, yeah, so, and I think the question you want to ask yourself is, uh, depending on how much you're paying for a property, like for example, when I'm paying 331 bucks, you know, the cost of hiring a title company or a closing attorney to handle that one closing could be like 500 to a thousand bucks, depending on the state and the title company. So like, does it make sense paying three times more just to close the thing versus, uh, you know, paying the seller off? And I think what it ultimately depends on is what is the thing worth? Like how much can you sell it for in the end? Because if the profit margin is there to cover the cost of the closing agent, it's usually the right way to go because they know what they're doing. They do it all day long. They can find issues. They're probably not as efficient as I could be if I was closing it myself. But even then, like it takes a ton of work off my plate if a title company can do that. However, like if it's just a cheap deal, like for example, if I'm selling it for 1900 bucks, like I did, like the economics just don't make sense. Like the profit isn't there. And in those cases, it's just a matter of understanding how does one do a title search and what kind of deed do I need to get from this seller? And those answers are actually pretty straightforward. And in terms of how to do a title search, I've actually made a few videos just showing flat out how that works. But it's just a matter of uh, getting the title paperwork from the county and understanding what does a clear chain of title look like? Like, what am I looking for in these deeds that I got from the county? Uh, and you can also, there's also services out there that can do this stuff for you and, you know, get the paperwork, compile it, and they'll just like point out so you don't have to wonder, like, yep, there's a problem right here. You know, get this fixed. Um, and those obviously cost a little bit more, but the cost of just doing your own title search, in most cases for me, it's depending on where I get the stuff, could be anywhere from 75 to 150 bucks. And if you hire one of these services, it's more like a couple hundred bucks to do that. No, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something you want to look into. You, you don't want to just uh, go in blind and assume the person is, you know, the rightful owner. You want to verify that stuff. Okay. And at what price point do you... Th- think it's worth going with a title company to do the title search. I mean, I could imagine when you said Long Beach, California, I'm like, you bought a property in Long Beach for 300 bucks. <laughs> but you know, if you have a property in Long Beach, that probably will be worth more than. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in that situation, the seller was from Long Beach, but the property was in Michigan. So okay. but that's a, but that's like a classic example of somebody who lives a long ways away from the property itself. So like they're disinterested, they don't care. They just want their money and they want to stop paying taxes. But yeah, in terms of like how much should be there, I mean, there's no, that's not like one right answer, but usually if the property value or if like my total profit in the deal is like maybe 5,000 or higher, that's when I'll start looking at just using a title company. But it also depends on how much they cost. I know like in several states, like you literally have to have a real estate attorney involved in closing the deal. And just by nature of that, the closings are going to cost twice as much, you know, like a thousand bucks per closing. So a thousand bucks when you buy it, a thousand more bucks when you sell it. So in those cases, maybe like 10,000 or higher might make sense. Okay. But uh, I mean, another way to do this though, is like, if you don't want to mess around with closing it yourself, which, you know, is a worthy aspiration because it's kind of a, it's kind of a hassle, honestly, to close it yourself and it takes time. You could just try to target properties that are worth more. So the profit margin is always there to pay for that. Well, it, it sounds like when you were starting out, this was a several hundred dollar an hour activity that was highly economical for you when you started out. And that became uneconomical as your business scaled and you became more, more successful and more seasoned with this practice. And you kind of 
make those trade-offs over time. So it seems like a very worthwhile DIY skill for a listener to consider if they're thinking about trying to, to repeat some of what you're what you're talking about today. Yeah, and, and some people, I think one of the benefits I had was being in the banking world and like my job was actually to close deals. So like I did this all day long. I, I understood what I was doing. And some people are are pretty, you know, left-brained and analytical and they know how to really pick apart details and find issues. Other people are that's not their strength. Like that's not something they should be doing. Like don't even try to do it because <laughs> you're probably gonna miss stuff. So it, it sort of comes down to like understanding yourself and what you're good at. And I don't want to say I'm like an expert at the details, but I can do it. Like I'm capable of doing that. When it comes to financial guidance, you gotta trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? Rent app, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. So... I knew that if I had to do it, I could.
Okay, so let's talk about the tax implications of this. You bought a property for $331. You sold it for $1,900. So you made, let's call it $1,500 in profit. That was a short-term capital gain. So you would pay your regular, short-term capital gains are taxed at your current employment tax bracket. It seems like it's almost inventory at that point, right? You just, you you have it on your books for 10 days and you sell it. That's going to be just regular straight up income in in that case. Yeah. With land, um, there's not a whole lot of tax advantages with land. Like I'll, I'll say that that's, and again, I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax expert, so don't quote me on this stuff, but I know that's something that is generally like not that fun around tax time every year. You just seeing like, oh gosh, like I got to pay a lot of money in taxes. So that's, uh, I guess that's one of the drawbacks, if you will. But they, honestly, like the the profit margins that exist and the lack of competition and all the other things that land has going for it, like still a pretty compelling case. I mean, it's, that's, I think long-term, I think any land investor should probably try to eventually work their way up into some more long-term buy and hold assets that do have those advantages. It's almost not even, maybe I'll get beat up for this, so I'll just put it out there, but it's almost not even really investing. You'd know that the property is worth multiple times the $300 that you paid for it and you sell it immediately. You're simply just arbitraging a really low price that you're, you're able to buy it for and apply your sophistication in that local market to sell it at a, at a significant premium. Well, and are you selling it right away? Yeah. I mean, for me, the goal is to immediately sell it. I mean, if I could sell it the same day I buy it, that's that would be a perfect situation. It rarely works out that way sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't really see how it's not investing because like I'm literally taking title to it and I'm, you know, I'm putting my money into an asset that I expect will you know be worth more. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So it's really just easier. I think it's easier and faster. You're flipping it. It's to say you're not, you're not holding it. Yeah. Yeah. Investing is, is too broad a term. It's, you're not holding it. You're flipping, you're flipping it right away as soon as you can. Have you ever considered to Mindy's tax point, holding the properties for a period of two years, letting them season, and then selling them at the end of that to kind of move it into a long-term capital gains Mm -hmm. uh, situation and increase your profits that way? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I would change the strategy. I mean, this, the point is still to get the thing sold and keep the money moving and go on to the next deal because that's the velocity of money kind of thing. There are times when, in my mind, it, it would mean that I did something wrong if I held the property for more than like a year. It's like, okay, I probably paid too much or I bought the wrong property or I'm asking too high of a price or something. Uh, but that can't happen. And when that happens, then... Maybe you might get lucky and save some money on taxes, but but still, like it's one of those things. My my objective is not to like mess with the formula just for the, the sake of paying less taxes. It's just to keep the, the machine working and keep the money moving. Okay, yeah, I think there are, there are some some situations where like you know I was actually looking at a deal a couple months ago where. Uh, there was a property right on uh, a highway and I could have bought the thing and uh, potentially put a outdoor advertising billboard on it. So like, even though the original intent was to buy the thing to flip it, sometimes you might decide to just keep it because there is potential to, you know, maybe lease it out to a farmer or maybe even build something on it. So it's not that you could never do that, but um, you know, really the, and that's one of the things about this direct mail strategy is you don't really get the luxury of picking which motivated sellers are going to respond to you. Like you just 
take what comes. The main point is just that the value of the property is worth a lot more than what you can buy it for. Um, and if it happens to fall into a really good location and you have a use for it, you could potentially hold it longer term. Okay, well, let's talk about buying the wrong property. What is the wrong property? Yeah, well, I mean, if my objective is to get the thing sold as soon as I can and you know, double or triple my money along the way, the wrong property is really anything that doesn't or can't do that. And it's not that common that that happens, but if and when it does happen, usually the reason is because I somehow messed up my due diligence. Either I didn't do enough of it or... I somehow got the wrong answer in the research that I was doing. And there's, uh, depending on what, on what part of the country you're buying land in, there's certain hot topic items that can be uh, a more common issue than others. Like, for example, on the East Coast, it's much more likely you could find a property with wetlands in it or in a flood zone, or in some way the property is not buildable. Sometimes there's a lot higher regulations on zoning and what properties can be used for and things like that. So, you know, you want to make sure you understand what can the property be used for? Does it have access? Are there any hidden issues that even though it is technically zoned right and on paper, it says it's buildable, you still can't really build on it because there's wetlands on there and you can't disturb the wetlands. So those are things that are, that come up a lot in certain parts of the country, but in other parts of the country, like out West in the desert, like you're not going to find wetlands there. So you don't have to spend a whole lot of time researching, uh-oh, are there wetlands here? However, there could be other issues like, you know, lack of road access or, you know, maybe there's a lack of water altogether. Like you can't get water there or water rights. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that can come up. It's just important to understand in the market where you're working, like coming up with a valid, realistic checklist of like, these are the things I need to make sure I understand before I buy this thing. Because really like, chances are your future buyer is probably going to be doing that research as well. So if there's a problem, you want to make sure you understand it before you become the owner. And yeah, I mean, any, any examples I can think of where that's come back to bite me has been in a, another issue that can come up is whenever there's a homeowners association involved, it can be a really a mess sometimes. Because sometimes it's hard to verify if there even is an HOA. And then when there is, you have to figure out from that HOA, okay, what other restrictions are there? What else can't I do with this property? And sometimes that's pretty clear cut. Other times it's like, you know, little landmines hidden, uh, hidden all over the place. So if you're working in an HOA area, just make sure you're, you're aware of that and figure out what the issues are. And also like, what does it cost to own a property in an HOA? Because that's another issue you got to watch out for. But uh, yeah, assuming you do all your, your due diligence and your homework and you understand what you're buying and you can account for all that stuff when you make your offer, it's kind of hard to get hurt, mainly because like, again, you're buying it for like almost nothing, really. And it's like if you were to invest in anything that has a certain amount of value and if you buy it way down here, you know, in the, in the basement price range, even if you end up being wrong about something, even if you valued it wrong, or you missed a you know crucial piece of information, even then, still, it's kind of hard to get hurt. I mean, at worst case scenario, you might break even. So, yeah. Okay, you said you're making offers at like 10 to 30% of what you think it will be worth when you go to sell it. Is that where you are still making offers? Is that where you're still suggesting people make offers? And would you suggest sticking closer to home when you're first starting out? Because... 
I don't know anything about the wetlands. I live in the desert lands, so I know a lot about that. And I know that if there's no water available, you've got a big piece of dirt that nobody wants. Yeah. So is sticking closer to home so you know what's going on? I mean, I can tell you that was what I did when I got started. It was almost like this mental obstacle of like, I need to be able to drive and see it in order to be comfortable. Like if something goes wrong, maybe I need to go, I don't know, do something on the property. And uh, so, yeah, so for my first few years, that was what I did. I only worked in Michigan and I literally drove out and saw every property before I bought it and took pictures myself. And you can do that. But what I found is that Michigan is, when you look at all the states in the U.S., Michigan is kind of like, it's not the best place to do this, but it's not the worst either. Like it has things to offer, but it's, there's better places. And, uh, you know, when I did my first deal, when I bought and sold the thing and made like 40,000 bucks, and I, to this day, I've still never seen this property. And when I got all the, way, all the way through that and realized like, hey, I didn't have to drive up there. So like, why don't I just do this anywhere in the US? Because a lot of the information you need to get, you can get from a lot of free resources like Google Earth. Uh, there's paid data services you can use for a lot of this info. You can even hire local boots on the ground to drive to your property and take pictures for you. That's, you know, I just did that last week. Uh, there's tons of people like Craigslist who are happy to do that for you. So to answer your question, you can start local, but I would just know in your head, you don't have to limit yourself to that. I did that for years, but it was, didn't really help me that much in the long run. It kind of just slowed me up, I think. Okay, that's fair. So you've said a couple of different kinds of land. You had the the buildable property kind of in the boonies, and then you had the an HOA property. What's the best type of land to buy for somebody who's just starting out? The type of property that there is by far the most of is like smaller residential lots. Like there's a ton of those out there. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, I think part of the reason why there's so many motivated sellers for those is because people buy them without really thinking it through maybe. And, and the properties, they don't produce cash flow for the people that own them. And they just kind of end up being a drag on their budget and they're just not really serving a purpose. And I think just in terms of quantity, there's a lot more of them out there. So if you're looking for like lowest barrier to entry in terms of just cost, I mean, that, that was what I started with. There's still lots of deals like that out there that I do. And um, yeah, it's just, it's generally not that hard to find those. It's like the lowest hanging fruit. If you wanted to go into like the higher end properties though, that make more and just have a bigger profit margin, there's fewer of them to go around and they're harder to find, but really just focusing on properties that have larger acreage, maybe with some special features nearby. Maybe if it's by a lake or a mountain or a, a city that lots of people are flocking to, things like that. So, but again, like you got to be ready to put more money into those bigger ones, obviously. Okay. And on the flip side, what is the worst type of property to buy when you're just starting out? Probably a property that, um, well, I'll just explain like one of my bad experiences and there haven't been a lot of them. So like whenever I talk about these, there's just a couple to choose from really. But there was a property that I bought in my first year where it was this tiny little triangle shaped property uh, right by a highway. And because of the size and shape of it, and the required building setbacks in that township, you literally couldn't do anything with it. Like you can't build anything. So like it was, it did have road access, but other than that, like it was truly a pointless property that nobody could use for anything, except for maybe the person that lived right next to it. They could buy it and add on to their yard. 
So I had paid 327 bucks for this, I think it was. And after trying to sell it, you know, and having a hard time, obviously, because why would somebody buy this thing? Uh, I ended up contacting that neighbor and just said, hey, I want this property, I'll give it to you. And I just gave it to him for free. But th- that's an example of like failure to do proper due diligence and just going too fast and not knowing what I was doing. But I would say any kind of property like that where, you know, say if the size of it is, I don't know, 0.1 acres or smaller, it's highly unlikely, unless you're like in Chicago, in properties that are super tiny and they can fit, you know, row houses on them. In most rural areas, that's not going to be a very high demand type of property. So there's actually ways if you use a, a data service to get your uh, direct mail list, you can actually tell the service like, hey, only give me properties that are in this size range, in these zip codes, in this county. So you can get really specific about it if you are using one of those data services. Because I think it's helpful and instructive in kind of understanding your framework from another angle. Basically, what's happening here is you go in, you say, eight per acre, property in this area is worth about this with these specifications. And this property you bought, you said was worth probably 2000 bucks given its size. But because of its shape and location, none of the, the all, that did not apply, which, which is what caused you to lose money on that particular deal. And that's kind of the roadblock that a newer investor entering your space could fall into or, or the, the, mm-hmm. the, the trap, I guess, that yeah. they could fall into. Yeah. And, and that, uh, I don't know that there's any way to guarantee that you'll never get any of those bad properties on your list. Sometimes it, it just happens. But I think when you get calls back on those or when somebody does accept your offer in the mail, uh, if say if you were doing blind offers, just understand like, okay, this is not a done deal. I still need to do my homework and make sure this actually fits in the box and is going to be usable for something. And part of that, I think you just get from experience. Like there's different oddities that can come up in different markets. Like there may be some issue in Florida that I just don't ever have to deal with in the markets that I work in. So it's just kind of a a matter of understanding what to scan the horizon for. And I think you can really only get a clear picture on that by just working in those markets and acknowledging that there will probably be some mishaps along the way. But if you just follow the best practices, you'll uh, probably avoid the vast majority of those. Last question before we kind of move on here. Could you give us a kind of a quick overview of the volume that your business kind of grew by? Like the first year you did that first deal. How many deals did you do that first year? And then how did that kind of progress to, to the present? Yeah. So first year, I think it was about like 30 deals. And that was mostly like really small stuff, like rinky-dink lots that were, like I was just sending offers on everything I could get. And, uh, you know, I had a really small budget, so that kind of slowed me up as well. But the following year, it was probably like, I can't remember the exact count, but it probably progressed up to maybe like 50-ish deals per year. But then when I, I started doing a few of the bigger ones and I realized like, you know, it takes about as much time to do this huge deal as it did to take to do this deal that made me a thousand bucks. So like, maybe I should just focus on the bigger ones. So, so these days I'm doing, you know, far less volume, like usually six to 12 deals a year, but I'm, I'm focusing on only those bigger deals so that my time is well spent. And really I, it, it's something that I can do. I don't have to spend every hour of my week doing that. Like I'm able to kind of cherry pick and use a sniper rifle to pick out the ones that I want and not chase after everything. And I think it sort of depends on your goals. Like if you want to make like millions doing this, it's going to be hard to do that. You sort of do have to go after everything that's out there. But if it's, you know, if it's something that you want to do on a part-time basis and not have it control every hour of your day, then you're free to do that. And so that's kind of the route that I've gone. 
So do you still have a job? No. Well, I guess it depends on how you define a job. I mean, I work for myself, but yeah. Uh, do you work for the man or you work for your yourself? <laughs> you work for yourself. So you have you're self-employed. Yep. Which yeah, means if, uh, you can do what you want. I'm the man. Yeah. You are right. the man. So you yep. do work for the man. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh just a quick note in Florida, you want to make sure there are no gopher tortoises on your land. And it's like forty thousand dollars to move a threatened gopher tortoise or maybe like, is that, I don't, is that like an endangered species or something or what's yes, the issue? They're, they're threatened okay. and they mm. are, I don't, you know what? I know enough to be dangerous. I just know that if you are finding a property with a gopher tortoise on it, don't buy that property in Florida. Sounds like you'll need a shell company to invest there. All oh, right, let's move goodness. on to the financial scan now. <laughs> Did everybody catch that? Just make sure that uh, everybody caught Scott's little joke. Um, So we have added a new segment to the show recently called The Financial Scan. We want to know what you're investing in. Where are you planting your money so that it grows for your retirement? And while there is no one right answer, we all know that it will take forever to become a millionaire based solely on your W-2 job. So to improve our chances of success, we invest in stocks, in bonds, in real estate, or in other opportunities. Seth, where are you planting your money besides yeah, the land? I mean, yeah, well, it's probably like 70%-ish uh, tied up in various real estate projects and that kind of thing. And I think that's just by nature of what I do. And that's kind of what I like. That's what I like to spend my time on. And I, I do have uh, some stocks and that kind of thing. I've got sort of a cross between Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs and probably 20% of my stuff is tied up in that. And, um, you know, the other 20%, I guess, would just be kind of cash in the bank, which actually like, I don't think that's smart, especially right now. I want to move that cash to something that isn't US currency, just given where the economy and value of the dollar is probably going. But it's been kind of my my next goal is to plug some money into a longer term buy and hold, like maybe a self-storage facility or something like that. I've actually spent the past year trying to figure that business out and trying to find deals, but it's like, it's hard right now. Like people want just insane prices for their facilities in my area anyway. So, but hopefully I can find some place to park that cash. that isn't just cash. Yeah. Well, you know, I, interesting thing on the cash, you know, it, given the nature of your business, do you think that that's just kind of a, an, an inevitability because yeah. you, know, you never know when that next huge deal could come along and you, you've got to be well capitalized or have the cash or at least access to access to, to financing to, to go get it. Yeah. It's uh it's something that like, I don't necessarily want as much cash there as I currently do, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you don't want to totally drain your bank account either. Cause that'll just kind of cripple me if like an awesome deal comes up and I'm just stuck cause I don't have the cash anymore. So yeah, it's a great point. It just, it just sounds to me like you you regularly mint three, four, 500% returns on these land deals in in these types of situations. And so the return on your cash is astronomical compared to what it might be for me, for example, and having a cash position. It's just just an observation. Yeah. Yep. That's accurate. Okay. It is time for the famous four. These are the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Seth, are you ready? I'm ready. Fire away. I'm going to guess what your favorite finance book is. Rich Dad, Poor Dad? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great guess. I don't know why you picked that. But, <laughs> um, you know, I 
I'm always torn on that because I feel like everybody says that and I want to be different. I want to have something else to talk about. So I was actually thinking about this. There's a couple books that I just think are very helpful to read and be aware of. Uh, One of them is Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. You guys familiar with that book? I have heard that book mentioned several times. Not on this show, but just in general. I'm sorry, Scott, did you say you've never read it or you have? I have never read it either. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth checking out for sure. It's uh, it's kind of like I've heard it explained as like the Dave Ramsey envelope system, but for business. So oh. you know, basically, when you when you make, uh, whenever you make any revenue in a business, uh, you want to have places where it automatically goes. Like a portion of it goes to your tax account, a portion of it goes to your profit account, because one of the problems with uh, you know, with just the way accounting works at the end of the year, you'll see, hey, I've made X amount of profit. But that's actually a historical picture of what has already happened. And a lot of times that profit is already spent. But if you set up this kind of a system where the money is automatically funneled into the right place and you don't touch it, you don't see it, like you could actually send it to a different bank altogether. Uh, when you look at that profit number, you actually have the money because you haven't spent it on other stuff. So it kind of helps you to sort of like forces you to be more disciplined, I guess. But there's a lot of uh, very, very helpful takeaways from that book that is intended for like the entrepreneur, like the business scenario. But a lot of it really applies to personal finances too. You know, I think that's really a great thing to think about is your tax burden going forward. Like you said, oh, it's no fun at the end of the year. Oh, I have to pay all these taxes. Well, you have to pay all those taxes because you made all that money. It's not like they're just taxing you because you're breathing. But mm-hmm. you know, I I read a story about Bitcoin. Somebody like bought really low, sold high, went and bought something else which completely tanked and then he was he had like a $100,000 tax bill that he couldn't pay because he lost all his money in the next thing that's a really great point especially i think it ties in with what we've been talking about you made $1500 oh okay in the course of life you're probably going to pay more to the IRS than that $1500 profit would generate in taxes. But if you do that 50 times, maybe, you know, and then you spend it all, you are going to find yourself in the same Bitcoin hole that this other guy did. So, you know, paying your taxes, making sure you pay, you're putting aside for taxes is I think a really important thing that I don't want to get glossed over before we go to Scott's next question. Yeah. It's it's very, very easy to just like, it's kind of like when you're driving down the road, you know, like it's very easy to just let go of the wheel. Like, Things just happen. You don't really pay attention. You don't know where your money's going. And uh, having some kind of a metric for making sure the money goes where it needs to so that it's there when you need it. You're not like grasping at straws uh, when the time comes. It's a huge deal. It takes a lot of stress off your plate too because the money's just there. Yeah. Don't, don't invest your tax accounts, accounts payable in something that could possibly really go down in any form, right? That's the place to store it in the high yield savings account if any, if, you know, whatever. So no, love, love it. And, and a big mistake that I think a lot of people who make a, earn a W-2 income are not likely to, to make, but, but there's a risk because of the fact that your employer just pays those taxes for you mm-hmm. uh, by withholding them from every paycheck for you. Yeah. So, all right, great. What was your biggest money mistake? You know, I think for me, and this is something I still kind of wrestle with to this day, is uh, being too careful. And uh, I guess if I had to have a problem, it's not the worst one to have, but still, like, it's kind of held me back from a lot in life. You know, 
obviously we're talking about this in the context of like business and finances and stuff, but just in general, like I'm one who likes to have all the information before I do anything. And uh, unfortunately, that's just not how life works. Like there's always unknowns. There's always times when you have to kind of roll the dice. You know, Ken McElroy, I think he has a quote where he says he uh, he moves when he has 70% of the information. So like doesn't have it all, but enough to like be reasonably confident about what's going on. And uh, I don't know, I have, I have trouble with that sometimes, whether it's a new direction for a business or a new deal. And especially in land, like there's actually things like appraising the land and understanding what it's worth. Um, it's a hard thing to do. It's, it's much harder than doing that with houses. Uh, and that's a, that's a big drawback that I think it makes me stumble sometimes and slows up my process. So it's probably just being too careful and being able to just move without having 100% certainty. Yeah, sounds like opportunity cost, which yeah. is, uh, I think, a really good, one of the biggest and best ways to articulate your mis- mistakes. So everyone, mm-hmm. everyone's got those. Uh, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? You know, this is something that I've actually spent a bunch of time this past year getting into, and I wish I would have done it a lot sooner. And this is, and this is not necessarily like a land business thing. This is more just anybody who wants to go into business for themselves or you know build financial freedom is to like figure out what your strengths are and do things that align with them. And I think why I kind of struggled with this is because I just sort of assumed I knew myself. Like I, I thought I knew what I was good at, but um, and I, I didn't realize that there's things I can do that a lot of other people can't do and vice versa. There's certain things like I'm always going to be terrible at if I try to do them. Even if I spend tons of time trying to perfect myself, I'm, I'm still going to struggle there. And I was able to figure out a lot of that stuff with different tests like uh, you know, the Enneagram test. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Colby Index A. Uh, Perry Marshall has a marketing DNA test and the DISC test. There's all kinds of stuff like that. And people can sort of nerd out about that. And for the long t- longest time, I didn't really get into it. But when I started hiring people and having them take those tests, and then I took the test and figured out, okay, so you should probably be doing this because you're really good at that. And I probably shouldn't touch it because I'm not that good at it. If I had known this from day one, like it could have saved me a lot of grief. I could have, you know, just focused on the stuff where I'm naturally inclined to do better. So I I wouldn't, uh, I think for, for any individual, it's hard to see outside of your own mind. And it's the things that we're all good at. We don't feel like experts at it because it just comes naturally to us, but we all have these superpowers in us and it's good to understand, you know, and articulate what those are. Right, what's your favorite joke to tell at parties? So something that uh, sometimes I'll say whenever I'm talking to a group of people and there's a lull in the conversation, I'll just break the silence and say, well, as usual, I'm, I'm trying not to think about Harrison Ford's earring. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison Ford has an earring and it looks very weird. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen this. I have to, I have to take a look. <laughs> if you've ever seen it, you've, you will be scared for life. But, uh, you know, in saying that, I basically force people to think about it. So. Oh, my God. What is this thing? <laughs> Scott looked it up. <laughs> it's just it's so just a little, it's unnatural. It's just a little black dot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, one, I, one other I, thing I've also learned is that uh, if you ever want to get somebody's attention when you're sending them a text... It really helps if you start the message just by saying, I trusted you. And that's all. <laughs> I found that's very effective. You'll always get a reply oh from gosh. somebody. 
Yeah. Wait, what happened? Ooh, I'm going <laughs> to do that. Uh, okay, I have a joke. I saw this on Twitter over the weekend. Why don't ants get sick? What's that? Because they've got little ant eye bodies. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I knew Scott would Hilarious. That really, that really right. bugs me. All right, right, Seth, where where can people find out more about you and where can people find out more about investing in land generally? Yeah, so uh, the blog where I've sort of been chronicling my journey for years now, uh, retipster.com. It's not just about land, but there's a lot of land-related stuff there. And uh, if anybody wants to just figure out more about sort of just the basics of how this business model works, I, I sort of have like... I don't know. I'm going to call it a course exactly, but lots of information that took me years to compile uh, in a blog post. And you can find it at landflippinglifecycle.com. And that'll forward you to the to the blog post. So feel free to check it out if you're interested. Awesome. awesome. And we will include links to this and your uh, regular blog at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow135. Seth, this was super fun. I am now excited to contact my county and other counties close to me and see what sort of land deals I can flip yeah. and make a 300% profit on. Yeah. And remember, it, it works well, but it's not the only way. So if you get hung up on that, and if you're like, I hate this, I don't want to do that, let me know. I can show you some other avenues you can go to find the list that's kind of lower, lower barrier to entry. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. I might take it. Sounds like this is just a a very inefficient market that there's a lot of opportunity in for the person who's willing to kind of really know their numbers, know what property values are, and and do the work to source the deals. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We will talk to you soon. Okay. That was Seth Williams from RE Tipster. Scott, what did you think? I think that Seth is really kind of, again, and I've said this is the the third time I'll state this today, but it's, it's, I think he's what he's really pointing out here is is an incredibly inefficient market where there's a lot of variation between the pricing and the ability to connect buyers and sellers in a meaningful way. I almost got this crazy impression on his first deal, the guy from Long Beach selling the the $300 plot of land in Michigan. I almost got a kind of similar vibe to like yard sale or something like that or a garage sale, right? Where that guy clearly didn't really want that land anymore. And Seth was more than happy to take it off his hands and resell it on the market for multiple times that value. And that guy you know, was perfectly ha- happy and content with that outcome. And so I think that there, it's kind of just like that, uh, a good potential profit center for some folks that are willing to put in the work find the figure out what properties are worth in various markets and then go about finding the folks who own them and see if they want to unload them unload those properties and, and and take them off their hands you know and compared to traditional real estate investing if you have to hold your land deal for an entire year if you have to, you know something comes up in your life and you just don't have time to deal with it it's not a huge chunk of change that you have sunk into this property and you're not paying a lot in you know mortgage costs and taxes and you know the taxes on undeveloped land are practically nothing so should your your life change you're not out a whole lot. You're not constantly sinking more money into this deal until you can deal with it. It seems like a really great way to get involved, 
and test it out without having to have a lot of capital to deploy, without having to really think a lot about it. You know, definitely do your due diligence. Definitely make sure that what you're buying is what you think you're buying. But it seems like a great way to even be a part-time investor. You know, do it when you have the opportunity to do it. Because we're all busy. We all have all these obligations. And sometimes you really have to force an investment, especially if you're flipping. You have to force that the time to flip the house. This is just really exciting to me. I can't wait to go check out some of these text delinquent lists and see what's going on and see if there's something I can get into for a smaller amount of money than my median priced home. Yeah, I'm I'm actually really intrigued by it, and we'll have to see if I if I um I go down that path and if I have some free time the next couple of weeks and 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 think about uh, finding a list of my own there. Yeah, well, I'll let you know how wealthy I become, and maybe you'll follow in my footsteps too. Sounds good. I look forward to hearing it. We'll have you back. We'll have you on this uh, this little podcast I've got going. So, oh, can I, I come we... on the show? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, should we get out of here, Scott? Let's do it. From episode 135 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen, and we are saying peace out, Girl Scout. And small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.